And I flew until I used up my money, and I got a few hours of solo time, and that was really great. I mean, if you remember the first time you drove the car, how exciting and freedom, all that. Yep. Uh, the airplane was that times 10. What was the first uh, plane you soloed in? Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Ministers. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, joined always by Alec Robson. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. It's another uh, beautiful day. We get uh, another great interview that we got uh, stacked up today, and um, I'm excited. Yeah, we are very excited to introduce Mr. Bob McConkie. Bob was baptized in 1972 in Branford, Florida. Mr. McConkie was appointed an elder in 1998 in Esto, Florida. Bob has been active as an elder for 10 years and is currently serving at Woodland Park Church Christ. Bob, it's so good to have you on the show today. Have one of our own elders. This is very exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, it's been been a long time coming. We had some technical difficulties with our uh, recording equipment, uh, but uh, it's it's great that we get to sit down and actually have a conversation with you. It's going to be it's going to be a good one. Yeah, we're very excited. Uh, we had to come back for a second meal too. First time we came, we got a meal. We didn't record, so and I believe there's chili on. <laughs> yeah, I can smell it. So, well, I think there's something <laughs> going on here. <laughs> All right, let's hop right in. How were you brought up? Well, I was brought up by parents in the Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and I know it's not just in the South, but I don't know the extent of it. But it was where I was. And so from my earliest memories, uh, we went to the First Baptist Church in Dexter, Missouri when I was a little boy. And then we moved to Florida when I was almost six years old and went to the First Baptist Church in Winter Haven, Florida. And then in Lake City, Florida, went to the Parkview Baptist Church through my high school years. So would you consider Florida your home state? Pretty much, pretty much. What did you do for fun in Florida growing up? Well, we went to my grandparents uh, almost every weekend. They were about 120 miles away down at Fort Myers Beach. They had a little cottage court on the beach you know rented rooms out um and so we go down there and play in the sand you know when we were little kids and then as high school rolled around uh we didn't go there as much and i was enjoying high school a lot what were your interests in high school engines hot rodding and airplanes Makes me want to ask, what was your first vehicle? Was it a, a hot rod? No, it wasn't. <laughs> My very first vehicle only had two wheels. It was a 1966 Honda Super 90. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Did you ever get to your hot rod? Well, yes, I, I ended up hot rodding about everything I owned except for the very first car. It was a 1952 Chevy, and uh, we pulled it out of a cornfield with my friend's dad's truck and pulled it to another friend's house and his parents were gracious enough to let me work on it there in the yard for a few days and it wasn't running this reason we had to pull it over there and uh in four or five days i had it running and i drove it home and i drove it around for i don't know six or eight months before i got my next car which was a 64 impala nice my grandpa gave me that car, and it was um, remarkably better than the 52 Chevy. Yeah, 
my my first car was a 81 Subaru Brat, so, you know, it was pretty cool. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, know you weren't. <laughs> so you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church mm-hmm. all through high school. Uh, and did you continue in the Baptist Church after high school? No. Um, I actually dated a girl in, when I was in my senior year. And her dad was a gospel preacher down there in the Branford area. And that's where I first heard the truth of the Bible. And, you know, the learning the Bible wasn't that important in the Baptist church. I mean, some would, might disagree with that, but because there were no, no things to do, because everything is a work, then uh, there really was no emphasis on it. And I think what impressed me the most wasn't the lives of the family that taught me so much as what the Bible said about things. And I thought, I've been hearing preaching, going to Bible class, well, it was called Sunday school, uh, going to revival meetings and all of these things, and yet I'm hearing things out of the same book for the first time at age 18. So that was kind of amazing to me and really piqued my interest because even in my hot-rotting hobbies, um, there were always old wives' tales or old mechanics' tales, if you will, about this makes a car run faster, this doesn't, and so on and so on. Well, I found a lot of people were not speaking from knowledge, but just parroting what somebody else had said. Well, I learned early on just in that hobby, I needed to dig it out for myself. Well, it never crossed my mind. The Bible said something other than what I'd already been taught. And turned out it said a lot of things that I had never been taught. What was the thing that stood out the most that you hadn't been taught? Well, that's kind of difficult to answer uh, because it's been 50 years ago. <laughs> I, I think perhaps uh, the act of obeying the gospel, I mean, in the Baptist church, it was you just believe with all your heart that Jesus is your Savior, and you know that's it. Uh, I was baptized but into the Baptist church. It was not for any other reason. And so those things, uh, I think, impressed me because I'd never heard it. It's never taught. And we can never, in the church, assume that people have a background that know anything about any part of the Bible because most people know a lot less than they think they do. And that's not a a dig at anybody, it's just the fact. Bible study is not always important to Christians and to those outside of Christ. It's definitely not important. Yeah, it's it's easy to fall into that, uh, uh, those going through the motions type of thing. This is just what we do. We do these things and this is how we do it and and there's no, don't ask the question, don't, just don't ruffle the the feathers or tip the apple cart over or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use in this situation, that type of, we just, this is how it's always been done and don't question it. 
uh, I, I was always taught, you know, growing up, it question everything, uh, make that something that is definitely a part of who you are, uh, and f- look for the answer, and then know that the answers can be found in Scripture. Uh, and it sounds like uh, growing up, this is something that you experienced, uh, um, you know, age 18 or whatever it was there early on in your life where you kind of grew up thinking this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. And then when you're presented with um, actual biblical truths, uh, it sounds like you you took that and said, well, well what? <laughs> you know, what what is this and what is this and what is this and this? You know, this couldn't have been easy for, um, you know, your family relationships and things like that uh, is did it cause any kind of strifes or problems in that in that aspect? Or um, well, let's just say that my parents were less than happy with me, mm-hmm. and my well, one set of grandparents it didn't make any difference one way or the other. The other set, my grandmother, uh, who of course was a Baptist as well, um, said, do, "Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God?" And I said, "Yes, of course." And as long as I did that, then she was satisfied. And my parents never did actively resist it so much, but I could tell they were unhappy about it. And my my siblings didn't care one way or the other. And uh, but it was the revelation of the truth. You know, it, I wasn't just told this is what the Bible says, so you got to do it. I was shown what the Bible said. And I could see for myself. And see, that always makes more difference to me. What I see for myself is much more important than what somebody says. Did you end up obeying the gospel then at 18? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, I don't remember what month it was. I'm not even sure what time of year it was. But if I was 18, my birthday being in June, it had to have been sometime after June. So I think the summer of 72 is probably accurate, but I don't know. And then where'd you go from there? So you're out of high school, you've obeyed the gospel. What was next? Well, uh, moved to another town and, um, after, well, I actually went to Votech for a year. So I, I still live there in, in Lake city near Branford. And, I began to worship at the uh, Lake City Church of Christ because it was just a half a mile or a mile up the road from where I was living. Then moved down to Daytona because my parents had moved down there after I graduated and worked there for a while and went to the Holly Hill Church of Christ. And then I hired on with AT&T and was on the road with them in the splicing construction department. And... I worshipped semi-regularly. It was very difficult because we were from place to place all the time. But I was less diligent, much less diligent then, because I was still a new Christian. I didn't have a very good foundation because, you know, I'd moved on from where I had been, converted, and people had changed around and, you know, a lot of things um changed and there really wasn't any follow-up to obeying the gospel and coming in from where I came in from I would say that's probably one of the biggest failings that people experience when they obey the gospel is there's almost no follow-up 
And so people are left standing there thinking that, well, this is all there is. And so uh, I've, I've punched my ticket instead of growing in faith, which is putting God's word in your heart. You know, that wasn't stressed at all. What was the thing that convicted you? What was your conviction for baptism? Because I, I ask that because I find that sometimes that's what it changes sometimes as you go along. Like Whatever got you into the conviction of being baptized, and then as you go on in your life, that conviction can change to keep you in the Word. Because, like, yeah. for example, for me being younger, it was a, a fear of hell was my conviction. I didn't want to go to hell. And then as I matured as a Christian, now I realize that, well, baptism and being a Christian really isn't heaven and hell based. That's kind of like the after effect of everything. It's more of sharing the gospel and, and bringing others. That's the purpose of Christianity. Well, the uh, heaven and hell aspect, I think, is what it is for most people in the beginning. Because people, if they're honest in their assessment of reading the Word, they will notice that they're both spoken of. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that one's bad, one's good. So I think I want the better one. And so it's like when you raise children, uh, corporal punishment is not something they desire. And corporal punishment will keep them away from things that they need to be kept away from with by good parents. And so I think it's a very natural beginning place. And then as you grow in faith, mature in the faith, then you find out that there's a lot more to it than avoiding hell and seeking heaven. You still do those things, but then you realize that Yes, you can teach somebody as well. Now, some people realize that much earlier, and some it's much later. It was later for me because uh, I was on the road up until the late 80s, and so I didn't have a home congregation uh, for all those years and, uh, in fact, never led singing or led a public prayer up until the late 80s. And how many years was that since your baptism? Uh, about 16 or 17. And where were you when you finally had that aha moment? And you Was it when you got a church home? Yes, yes. Uh, and there was an older man preaching who's long since died, but he encouraged me in a couple of ways to, to do something extra, and, you know, to teach a class or something. And... Perhaps lead singing. I don't remember that because I did lead singing, so it must have been part of the, his encouragement. And, you know, taking an interest in somebody younger in the faith, even if not in years, but that too, uh, that's another important role of older Christians because had he not done what he did, perhaps I would have never matured. Was he your first mentor? Well, in a sense... He was an encourager because I'm not even sure I've ever had a mentor. The way I picture a mentor is something that's got some regularity to it, and I never had that. Were you seeking mentorship? or I didn't even know what it was then. didn't even know what it was. Yeah, it's something that, uh, unfortunately, I feel that uh, the church has dropped the ball on in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, this idea of finding those that are 
um, not necessarily like you're saying younger than you, but younger in the faith than you, uh, and being there to mentor those into the next role and to keep uh, to keep going uh, in the faith uh, and to keep the 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 faith growing uh, from that point. Because if you go and read your New Testament, <laughs> most of the New Testament is Paul writing letters to already Christians and mentoring them on their behavior and how to continue the faith. Most of the scripture is not about how to become a Christian. That's in there, yes. Uh, but most of the scripture is about how do I continue on the path? How do I finish the race? How do I, how do I mentor the next generation? How do I... Uh, train others to follow the faith. All, most of the scripture is focused on that aspect. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of the times the church has kind of dropped the ball uh, on that aspect. Uh, you don't see a lot of members, <laughs> Kevin and I's age <laughs> in the church. Uh, and it's it's an unfortunate reality, uh, but it is something that has happened. Uh, and so how do we how do we go from there? I mean, what uh, what's, what's the next step? Uh, and how do we... Um, and and I know it's not something we can answer on a <laughs> you know a thirty minute podcast, uh, but it's it is something that we need to really seriously consider and think about. Uh, how do we how do we go from here? How do we keep it going? So going back to your life, what did you do for AT and T? Well, I worked in the construction gangs, is what they called it. We were a roving group of splicers going from one assignment to the next throughout southern nine states, and uh, did that for a number of years, and then in 88 or 89, I didn't think I'd ever forget that, but one of those years, I got out of the construction department, and uh, we lived in Bonifay, Florida, which was just south of Esto, uh, but there was a church in Bonifay that we worshipped with for three years, and experiences there um some good and not some not good uh and after three years of worshiping there we went up the road to esto and that was turned out to be a very good move in the long run and well even in the short run what was uh different about that congregation versus the previous well the previous one the man that seemed to be uh most influential, was a proponent of Max King's doctrine of 70 ADism, and uh, you may have some knowledge of what that is, but it's where the judgment of God was visited upon the Jerusalem in 70 AD, and there is no second coming of Christ. That was the second coming. And when I realized that there was no altering the the facts as he taught them. And, of course, they weren't facts. I even confronted him with a question saying, how much of this doctrine can you teach without all these other books? How much of it can you teach just from the Bible? And he said, I guess we don't have anything else to talk about. That was his response. And I said, I guess not. And so... I'd already made the decision to leave because there was no fixing that. And it was that way until he died, and what was left of that congregation disappeared. Hmm. That no longer exists. Well, 
changing it up a little bit here, what were your, were you still hot rodding or did you have other hobbies or? Well, I did hot rod in the late 80s and through most of the 90s. I sold my hot rod in, in 1998. Uh, I had accomplished all I wanted to and I was tired of it, so I sold it. I was also a, a target shooter competitively, but it was difficult to afford two hobbies that are not inexpensive. And I enjoyed shooting more at that time, and so I got out of one and, and got into the other one uh, with a little more purpose, not a great deal more. I mean, it was about the same. It's just I had more time to go because I wasn't going to the, the racetrack on every Saturday, and I was going to the rifle matches once a month on Saturday, and so that's what I started. Before we completely leave the, the hot riding, what was your fastest quarter mile or did you race the quarter mile well i did both uh in the panhandle where i ended up and sold the car it was only an eighth of a mile track um my best eighth of a mile was a 6.43 at 107 miles an hour and that's with an all steel car except for the fiberglass hood and a nine inch slick you know it wasn't the big the big boys and uh the quarter mile best that would be an equivalent to a 10 flat and a quarter. But um, the actual best I did on a quarter mile was a different engine, so it's it's all different, but it was like 1040 or something at 127. Nice. And, you know, going from zero to 106 seconds is quite exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're really not showing that with your body language right now. but well, you're You're pulling... <laughs> You're pulling about two G's or so, maybe two and a quarter G's at the launch, and the wheels were clear. Front wheels were off the ground, oh, from six inches to a foot. <laughs> What's the fastest you've ever been in a vehicle? Because all these drag guys there. Yeah, well, that was I... probably you know 127, 129, somewhere in there, because that's as fast as it went in a quarter mile. But you said you did you did uh, aviation as well. Have you ever been in? planes well yes <laughs> when did that start yeah <laughs> when i was well the interest had been there for a long time my dad bought me a student pilot manual oh i was probably 14 i don't remember now but about that and 14 was the first time i actually got to take the controls of an airplane uh, one of his friends was a pilot and had an airplane and so we went flying with him, and I'd been in an airplane before, but, you know, I was just a little kid, so hands off. Of course, you couldn't see out anyway. I mean, Yeah, just a box in the sky, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just like sitting in the back seat when you're five years old. And you can't see out the windows either. But uh, I got to fly a little bit then at 14, and, you know, I couldn't wait to get old enough to fly. An unfortunate reality of flying then and now it's very expensive mm -hmm. uh, it's more expensive than any other hobby and I worked at the airport in the, my junior the summer after my junior year in high school fueling up airplanes and cleaning up the place and you know whatever they told me to do but instead of paying me in dollars they paid me in flight time so at the end of the summer I didn't work there anymore and I just 
started collecting my pay and flight lessons because one of the guys, of course, was a flight instructor. And so in, oh, let's see, about two months after I turned 17 years old, I soloed. I'd flown with my dad some before that, and it counted as instruction because he was an instructor. But he didn't have an airplane, so it there just wasn't any flying because uh, there wasn't any money for it. And I flew until I used up my money, and I got a few hours of solo time, and that was really great. I mean, if you remember the first time you drove the car, how exciting and freedom, all that. Yep. Uh, the airplane was that times 10. What was the first uh, plane you soloed in? Cessna 150. I think it was a 67 or 68 model, but I don't remember now. It was fairly new at the time because it was 1971. So you've had the, the need for speed since you were a teenager. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and I have flown airplanes o- over 200 miles an hour. You know, the uh, Cessna 210. We were cruising, well, it was like two and a quarter or something like that, but that was ground speed. It had uh, DME on it and distance measuring equipment so it could calculate ground speed, which for, at the time, that was probably 1973, that was something. My dad was selling airplanes down at the DeLand Airport, and so I got to go with him when he would ferry one down to a customer or something. Fun. Any low-level flying? Nope, uh, except takeoff and landing. Low-level flying is a good way to live a short life. (laughs) (laughs) So when did the interest of the shooting begin? And I I think you might have already said it, but... Well, no. Uh, I was eight years old when I first fired a rifle. I had a younger brother, and so he had to be at least six, apparently, because that's how old he was. Uh, I couldn't shoot if he couldn't shoot. Yeah, you now, Dad, nobody said that, but the unspoken rule was until little brother can do it, big brother can't. <laughs> what uh, rifle did you first shoot? Uh, well, it was my dad's first rifle, and I still have it. It's a little Remington Model 37 or something, single-shot twenty two. He got it when he was about 8 or 10 years old, which makes it... Uh, about 92 years old now. Um, I still have it. It still shoots. I think the 22 is like everyone's first rifle, besides maybe air rifles and BB guns, but I don't count that. Uh, we weren't allowed air rifles. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, <laughs> mostly because you get in trouble with them when you're a boy. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I never got in trouble. <laughs> I don't believe either one of you, especially Alec. <laughs> When did you start competitively shooting? The very first time I shot in a competition was with a handgun. I was in high school. In fact, the medal's hanging up there at the top left right there. It was 1970. A friend of mine from high school's dad shot pistol competition. Well, he did too. And they invited me to go with them, and they furnished me the pistol and ammunition because I didn't have any of that stuff. And I shot that match, and... Uh, I was in the beginner class, and there was only one other beginner there, and I trounced him soundly, and I'd never even shot a handgun, I don't think. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a great score, but for me it was. So that was the first time, but then the next time, 
with uh, high-power rifles. It wasn't until 1984 or 85. I think it was 84. And there was an older gentleman at the range there in Daytona that interested my brother in because he saw my brother shooting an M1 rifle. And I had M1 rifles too because I just liked M1 rifles. And uh, he interested my brother in shooting competitions because they had these 100-yard reduced course deals where they shrink the targets down uh, to simulate the 200, 300, and 600-yard ranges, and you'd shoot standing, you'd shoot rapid sitting, rapid prone, and slow prone at the various targets. And that sounded interesting to me. And my brother and I, uh, we prepared our own rifles. We learned how to glass bed an M1 stock, and that is very challenging, I'll tell you, because of the way the M1's constructed. M14, same way. I mean, M1A, it's just as difficult to do. Uh, Did all our own metal works. We got a little manual that showed what an armorer did at the the marksmanship units, and we did all our own work. We couldn't afford to send it to somebody and didn't want to wait six months or a year to get it back. And uh, so I started shooting in 84. I made expert, which there's marksman, sharpshooter, then expert. I made expert with my M1 as I prepared it, and I still have that rifle too, and almost made master. I'd shoot right up at the edge of it, but, you know, 94% of the possible score, but I was always falling short just a little bit. But uh, it was essentially a rack-grade M1 with my preparation work is precision shooting the only hobby you still maintain yes it is Uh, and i've learned a great deal more about rifles and ammunition because you always load your own ammunition and comp for competition i mean even with the m1 we did that was more of a cost concern not for precision but now it's more for precision rather than cost how many years have you been shooting competitively then? I guess about 25 years, but not all at one lick. The The original high-power stuff with the M1, that was only like a year and a half or so. And then I didn't shoot for 10 years because we'd moved to another location for work. There was nothing convenient to, to go even practice, much less compete. And so for 10 years, I didn't do anything. But I did have the race car at the time, so I had that hobby. And then uh, we moved back to the Panhandle and worshipped at Esto again. And there was a match or two available there, and so I started back in then. What is the thing you take away from, you know, 20-plus years of precision shooting and matches? Like, what's the one thing that you think you learned that over all those years? Well, like I learned at work, gather your own data and information and see that's true in christianity too if you don't see it and know it for yourself all you know is what somebody says and i found out at work and with precision shooting somebody says and they said are two bad advisors Uh, it's much better if you collect your own information and data doesn't mean you can't have help from somebody because a a mentor or a helper is good. I've had people that have helped me with things occasionally in life, but it wasn't 
like I picture a mentor where you've got something that goes is ongoing for maybe two or three years. Never had that. But uh, I think that's the big takeaway. It's not any specific procedure or process, but it is, it's learning to do just that, get your own information. So you became an elder in Florida. Um, and which congregation was that again? Esto. Esto. And you said that that was the first time they'd had elders in a while? Uh, a longer while than I knew that elders had ever been there. There had been some, but it was probably 20 or 30 years before. And how many uh, men did you serve with? Just one. Just one other man. Yeah, just like here. And did you guys just, you know, lean on each other for learning what you're doing, or how did all that go? Was there a learning curve? Yes, there was. Um, He had never served as an elder, but he had been a gospel preacher for all his life. And so he had a great deal of knowledge, and he he was very good to serve with. Um, and I, I always thought that we had a very good relationship, he and I, and with our minister, uh, Jimmy Holland, uh, uh, it, it was, we were a very good team. We, uh, we saw things eye to eye for the most part. I mean, there were some things where you have a difference of opinion when they are matters of opinion and we have to have liberty on matters of opinion because that's what they are. <laughs> yeah. Matters of faith, and there's no leeway there. If there was, God wouldn't bother giving us all the information. He'd have just said, do what you want. What brought you to Colorado? Well, Terry was raised in Colorado, my wife, and uh, I had promised her back when we got married in 2002, that I'll try to get you home someday. And 10 years after we were married, the opportunity came up. There was actually uh, a man that was out here in the same position I held down in Florida in the southeast. Uh, He started making noises about retiring about 2010, He said it'd be about five years he'd be retiring. And so I'd already arranged it with our manager that when he retires, I'd like to take his place. And and my manager said it'd be fine. Uh, The challenge came when he decided he was going to retire next year. And that was in 2011 when it was still four years away. And now it was one year away. So we had to accelerate all of our preparations to to do so, and that's how we ended up back here. Now we've been here since April of 2012. How'd you meet Terry? That's a long story. (laughs) Uh, Back in 1977, uh, I was working up in the Washington, D.C. area. We were wrecking out some old lead sheath cables through Washington, D.C. Quite a challenge. I'd never been to a place that full of cars in my life. And, uh, I mean, even going through Atlanta, it wasn't like going through D.C. I mean, it was like kamikazes were everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But we worshiped with the Woodbridge Church of Christ in Woodbridge, Virginia, because we lived down in Dumfries, Virginia, which was uh, 25, 27 miles south of 
D.C. And we were worshiped there at Woodbridge, and my first wife and I, and we met uh, Terry and her first husband, Steve, there at church. We also met, met Bill and Janelle Ball, who live down in the Springs and go to Pikes Peak now. We met them at the same time. And so we've known all of them. And there was another couple, um, Merle and Wallace Dix, that now are in Lake City, Florida, because that's where he grew up. Well, I think they both did, but we met them up there too. And we've been, we were friends for, well, we were only there about two and a half months, but we became fast friends, and um, Steve and Terry and Melinda and I. And we'd go up to the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, Front Royal, and uh, go to, the Luray Caverns, you know, we did all the stuff there because it was like uh, as close to mountains as we could get, and, and they were mountain, Blue Ridge Mountains. And so we were uh, excited about all of that, and, and, of course, listening to Steve and Terry talk about Colorado, that was very enticing to me because I'd never been here before. I'd been in Mexico in the Sierra Madres, and I liked that in the wide-open country down in Mexico. Uh and so I had a I had a taste for it anyway. Well, over the years, we would see each other. Oh, every three years or so, we'd come out here or something. You know, when he, Steve got out of the army, they settled in Montrose, and uh, well, they were in a spring sometimes too. But we visited them in Montrose. We came out in '82 the first time, and we came out in '84 and went on my one and only elk hunt. And uh, it was mostly a blizzard and wading through hip deep snow. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. Now we know why it's only one. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I tell people that I like shooting too much to go hunting. You don't get to shoot much. <laughs> only if you're a good shot. Well, or the other way around. If you're a bad shot, you shoot so much. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I hardly see that as fun. There's no precision in missing. But that's how we met. And back in 99, as a terrible shock to me, uh, we had just been out to Colorado and visited with them. And we always stayed at their house. And they'd take us around and we'd see things or do things up in the mountains, you know, like everybody does when they come out here as a tourist. And we had been out here, and things didn't quite seem right with them. But nothing was said, and I didn't know. And have you ever had the feeling you just feel compelled to call somebody or to do something? Well, I had a feeling I needed to call Steve and see how they were doing. I called, and Alan, the youngest boy, he was 14 at the time, he said, he's not here. That's all he said. I said, is is your mom there? And no, she's at work. And so I just let it drop it there. I said, well, tell him I called. Well, Steve had already left. He served with the papers while he was out of town working. And he left. And I didn't know it because Alan didn't tell me, but Terry told me or called later and said, how did you know? And I said, know what? And then she told me. I couldn't believe it. I would have never guessed. But two years later, I experienced it myself. And 
I would say that was the toughest part of my life for a number of years. Um, It was definitely the valley of the shadow of death. However, I knew it wasn't God's fault. If there was any fault, it was me and her. And I never quit on God. I mean, that never even crossed my mind. Why, Why would you give up your only hope? Because you're hurt and mad and sad. And Terry tried to, wanted to talk Melinda out of it. Of course, she didn't know what was going on. And uh, by that point, it was irreparable. I wanted to repair it. She wouldn't have it. And Terry just told me because Melinda wouldn't talk to her because she knew Terry wasn't going to tell her what she wanted to hear. And that's what we always have to be careful about when we're trying to help somebody. Don't tell them what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear with love, but what they need. Because you're not loving them if you don't tell them what they need to hear. And so Terry and I started talking. She was trying to, she was telling me, well, I've got two years ahead of you on this. I I know what kind of stuff you're going to go through. So that's how Terry and I began. I mean, I didn't see her for a long time, but uh, I eventually made a trip out here. And she was somebody I trusted because at the time I'd known her for 25 years. And she was being a single mom the best she knew how because Alan was still a teenager at home. And I knew she could be dependent upon because she didn't do like a lot of people do when they get a divorce. First thing they start doing is running around with everybody they can run around with because, well, I've been married before, so it doesn't matter. Christian behavior doesn't go away because your circumstances change. And if your faith doesn't get stronger in difficulties, you need to be looking at yourself pretty hard because you should get stronger. Was there a, like a specific verse or passage that gave you comfort through all those, the dark time? I, I can't think of that. Uh, nothing comes to mind, but I'll say this. I probably had three or four people, Dean Kelly, who preached for us a few years before that, and that I'd also known in Lake City, Florida. That's how he ended up preaching for us, because he moved up to work at Faulkner University in Montgomery, and I invited him down to preach a meeting for us and hired him for five years. Um, Dean Kelly and Barbara, his wife, they would talk to me on the phone because they lived so far away. Um, Johnny Moss, who had gone through one years before, he was a big help because I was calling him sometimes at 2 a.m. To say that your life is not normal would be an understatement. And then Terry, of course, I talked to her occasionally. Johnny probably the most, uh, Dean and Barbara, and probably as much as Johnny was Kenneth and Ree Cook. He's the one I served as an elder with. And the Cooks were always very dear people to me, but even more so then. Because even though neither of them experienced this, as a gospel preacher, he had counseled many people through this from about every aspect. And I think without my brethren, those that I mentioned, there could have been somebody else, but I can't think of them. I think those were the ones 
without those people, I don't know if I could have made it by myself. In fact, we're not supposed to make it by ourselves. We're not on an island. And you had children, correct? Yep. My oldest was in college up at Faulkner. My youngest was 10 years old. So you're almost in the, the same boat that Terry was in as far as still having a child at home. Yep, indeed. And it was very tough on my children, and the scars of it are scars. They don't go away. There's things that you can hear or see on a television show that bring back things that you just soon not bring back. And But you know it's true And the Bible tells us that your character is built by the difficulties. Your character is never built if you're on easy street the whole time. I really don't know anybody that has been on easy street the whole time. There's always something hard, but that's what strengthens you in your faith, strengthens you against the day or other days, because that's not the only hard thing I've ever had. Hardest to date, but there could be many harder things. But it isn't the culmination of things here that are as important as being prepared for hereafter. We must find ourselves prepared on that day because none of us know when that day is going to be for us. And not knowing that behooves us to be prepared always. Do you say that's the, the lesson you took out of all that hardship was just to be prepared? Uh, that That's one of the lessons. But I think the main lesson was the the fellowship and support that I received. And that taught me that I need to be prepared to give the same because now I've walked a road that not everybody has. And that doesn't mean I'm better qualified but it certainly means I am qualified because I know the depth of despair it can take you to. Uh, But it's truly not despair when you look back. But without my brethren and me, if I tried to do it on my own out of shame or guilt or whatever, uh, I don't think I'd have made it. Yeah, you just get stuck in the moment. And you need that, excuse me, you need that um, extra help of your brethren to get out of that, the pit uh, of despair, as you called it there. Uh, and it's something, unfortunately, that as human beings, we do experience. Uh, you know, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, and I always you know, point that out. It's, it's not if you have trouble, <laughs> it's when you have trouble. Uh, and that's the key. We have to, like you're saying, be prepared for it and expect trouble, hardship, heartache, problems. Uh, it's just part of life. Uh, and then be willing. And the, the key I think you were talking about earlier is don't let go of your faith. Don't let go of that because that's the most important part. Uh, don't go into that spiral of I'm going to blame God. I'm going to blame everything on him. And it's all his fault that this all happened. It's like, well, no. <laughs> and look at how can God use these situations to help me, but also to benefit others, my brethren. And I think that's, that's key. That's very, that's very good. So getting back to your story, you're now here in Colorado. When did you move here again? 2012, April of 2012. 
And did you move to Woodland Park right away, or were you somewhere else first? Well, we moved to this house right away, but we worshipped down at Pikes Peak because Bill and Janelle Ball were there, and Terry had been down there in years past in her previous life. Um, And so she knew three-fourths of the people there. And we always planned to worship there, even though we were living up here. Uh, However, about two years later, Terry had had a knee replacement, and she was confined to the house, and she had to be on this machine that worked her leg back and forth all the time to keep the joint from seizing up or whatever its purpose was. But it had the effect of keeping her nailed to the couch most of the time. And so I didn't want to go all the way down to Pikes Peak, and I knew there was a church in Woodland Park. And so I went there just for worship so I wouldn't leave her alone more than you know an hour and a half or so. And I came home probably after the second time, maybe the first, I don't remember now, but at least a second, and said, you know, we really need to be there because they could use our help and any efforts that we could utilize at Pikes Peak can be duplicated many times over because large congregation, this was a small congregation. So when she got to where she could actually leave the house again, uh, we made a difficult parting with our friends in Pikes Peak because they, they are our friends, still our friends, and it was not an easy thing to do. And we think it was the right thing to do, and it allowed me an opportunity ultimately to teach Sunday morning class. And uh, you have to teach if you if you can't keep from it. That's right. <laughs> and I couldn't keep from it, although I'm going to let uh, a young man teach as soon as I finish the book of James. <laughs> You're just starting, right? I got some time. <laughs> Well, I'm in chapter three, <laughs> oh, and no. it's a five-chapter book. So well, you've got a little time. Yeah, I was going to say, time. this past Sunday, we spent the entire class on the first verse of chapter three, so we're, we're good. Okay. This is right. I appreciate your long-windedness, Alec. Keep that up. Well, he does tend to add quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. He has very good comments. No, and I, I completely agree with you. That's part of the reason we're in Willow Park now is we were before at Pikes Peak. We moved to Divide to get into the woods. Just one of our dreams to always live in the in the forest. But we ended up starting to go to Woodland Park because I needed I needed to get involved. I needed to be active in a, in a role that was more than I could probably ever get at Pikes Peak. I would approach Pikes Peak like, "Yeah, put me to work," and it was a well, pass plates. Like, well, that's not. I mean, at the time, it was what I was okay with. I had to get out of my comfort zone, which definitely happened at Woodland Park. But the growth that I've received at Woodland Park doing those things out of my comfort zone is way more than I would have received for probably 10 years at a congregation where I could give in to my laziness and kind of hide. Yeah, you can hide and get lost if there's enough people. And so that's a challenge that the large congregations face. Uh, and it's and it's certainly not to find fault with larger congregations, but it's it's a challenge. It's a difficulty. And with a small congregation like ours at Woodland Park, finding enough people to cover all the jobs is the continual challenge. But you will grow faster here 
than you will almost anywhere, unless you're that type of person that's very extroverted, that, that thrives on a crowd, well, then you can probably grow there. That wasn't me. I'm introverted to the max, and a smaller group is more suited to, to my personality. But the opportunities are more numerous at the smaller churches. What convicted you to step up to be an elder at Woodland? Well, I I always believed, even from the first time I had served down in Florida, that if you're qualified, you should. But you know, at Esto, like at Woodland Park, there was no pre-existing eldership. I mean, had been a long time ago, but not at the time that so we found ourselves in both situations without an eldership, and it's difficult to start a process that there's really no biblical example other than Timothy, you go establish elderships, Titus, you go establish elderships. Well, they're not available, and Alec came up with uh, him and John Swan, but mostly Alec, uh, came up with the, oh, procedure, if you will, to get that that process started here at Woodland Park because I didn't feel right about just saying, well, I'll be one and he'll be one, so we've got one. That didn't seem right. I don't know that it'd be wrong, but it didn't seem right. So Alec came up with some procedures and went through some processes, and eventually it came to pass. Yeah, it was... uh... It was a challenge, uh, you know. It was something when when you guys hired me on as the minister here at Woodland Park. It was something that I I felt like it, it needed to happen. When I when I read through Scripture and I look at Scriptures and I see uh, establish eldership, establish eldership, and the elders did this and the elders did this, um, you know, I felt that it was uh, something as a congregation that we needed to at least pursue uh, to have an eldership established. Uh, in order to be, uh, if we're claiming to be um, wanting to follow what the Scripture says, uh, we at least need to, to do our due diligence, uh, so to speak. Um, and, you know, you give me <laughs> too much credit. Uh, I, I just read some other books. There's, there's a book that uh, uh, I enjoy. It's called Training of the Twelve. It's a great uh, uh, book of how Jesus established <laughs> the disciples, the apostles, and then how they went on to establish disciples of themselves. And I kind of utilize their, uh, that book's kind of, it's, it's a really, it's a difficult book to read, uh, but uh, it is a great book, a great tool to utilize of how, how did Jesus do it and how can we model what he did today? Uh, and so just kind of go from there and uh, encourage uh, those men that uh, you, you, you see qualified, uh, Bob and, and Tim and encourage them to want to step into that role, and then also uh, how do we involve the congregation uh, in this? It's not just a, like you're saying, well, I'll do it <laughs> type of thing. It's more of a how does the congregation is involved in this, and then moving forward, what does it mean? What is the responsibility for the elders? What is the responsibility for the congregation? Uh, it's not a it's not a CEO position. It's not a CFO position. It's not a business. Uh, it is a 
um, it's a body, it's a family, uh, and what that entails and the spiritual responsibilities and all those things. And so, uh, it was something that was pulling on my heartstrings, uh, when, you know, when I came in to a congregation that had no elders, uh, and something that, uh, I am very grateful that we were able to, to do this smoothly and it was a very, uh, successful. Uh, and so, uh, I encourage, you know, listeners out there and things like that. It's, it can be done <laughs> to go from no elders to elders. It's something that the Bible uh, charges us to at least attempt <laughs> uh, to go from there uh, and then have that. And it's it's been a huge blessing to have eldership here. It's been a great blessing spiritually uh, speaking here at Woodland Park. We've experienced a lot of uh, spiritual growth and also, you know, growth in, in numbers. I mean, it's been something as... Uh, uh, just since we've been here, it's been a great, great blessing for sure. So, uh, give me too much credit, <laughs> but it's it's something that just in what Scripture says. And so, we try here at Woodland Park, and I, you know, everywhere, it's just let's just do what Scripture says. Uh, and sometimes we try to make it way too complicated. <laughs> well, sometimes when we don't have a specific instruction, then we do tend to complicate some things that are probably and were probably exceedingly obvious at the time in the first century. But that's just the human yep. factor. Yep. So we, we're we're coming here at the end of the of the podcast of the of the interview here with Bob and we like to ask all of our uh, our interviewees kind of the same question. Uh, kind of our theme of the podcast is out of second Timothy two verse two uh, Paul charges Timothy, you need to find faithful men who are able to teach others also so we can continue uh, the faith. And now that we know a little bit more about you, Bob, and kind of uh, where you're coming from, we like to ask, you know, what would be your advice? What would be your advice to how do we take that verse into heart and say, how do I find faithful men who are able to teach others also so we can continue this encouragement and continue the church as it's designed uh, in Scripture? That's a pretty heavy question even though understanding the verse is simple, it shows that if you're finding faithful men, they're also unfaithful. And if there's something that you can pass on, that means there is a body of faith that is learnable that you should know already. You can't pass on something you do not know. So you have to use wisdom in your seeking out of people You can tell by characteristics of someone's life generally, by the fruit they bear, if they fit that description. And if they do, then as an older man, I should make effort to try and encourage spiritual growth, just like Ben Spigner did with me back in the 80s. Even though it wasn't a deep thing, It was a continual encouragement, and he was so nice to me about it, and he showed interest. I didn't see how I could refuse. Well, it's my turn to help groom, if you will, a younger in the faith, perhaps in age two, Christian who's definitely showing a a genuine interest. And I think that's what what our job is. Uh, It's it's not just the easy things. 
that's not always hard, but it can be because sometimes people resist wanting to grow because it's a lot easier not to than it is to grow. And, you know, I resisted it as well. I mean, I was your age when uh, Ben was trying to encourage me. Well, I'd moved around all my adult life. We had no ever had a, a home congregation. We didn't even know what that was like. And that wasn't to my advantage, although I did get to learn a lot about seeing different congregations and the way things were done. Uh, but it wasn't advantageous to my personal growth, and my growth didn't really take off until I actually was out of the moving around all the time because it lets you avoid responsibility because nobody knows you well enough to give you any. Mm-hmm. Almost like a large congregation can too. Yeah, yeah, very similar. Because either one, you can avoid the responsibility of having to grow. Because, see, if you don't grow and you stay immature as a Christian, then you're off the hook in your mind. But the fact is you're not. The Lord still expects you to grow whether you ever do it or not. And then that will be a conversation you'll have with him someday. And so I guess the encouragement that you're getting is be enough into people's lives to where you know them uh, and you know their, uh, where they are kind of spiritually speaking to where you can encourage them to maybe step out of their comfort zone, maybe teach a class, maybe lead some singing, maybe just be involved in, in some way that maybe they haven't even thought about themselves yet, but you can see that potential in them and not, it's not a forcing you have to do it this way or this way or this way. It's just a, you know what? You'd be really good doing this. You should try this. It doesn't matter if you're, you succeed the first time or not. That's, that's irrelevant. It's stepping out of that comfort zone and just taking responsibility for your own faith uh, and not allowing others around you to, you know, grow for you. <laughs> it's your right. responsibility. Uh, to exactly. Grow. Yeah. And, and we are responsible to do so. Yep. And we can help. Yeah. Even if it's just, uh, uh, an ear to listen, even if you're just there to listen, as someone's going through some struggles, some hardship, maybe you have something similar in your life that you've experienced and you just listen. That could be the encouragement that person needs to keep going, not abandon the faith. And it could be as easy as that. And so we have to think outside the box and not overcomplicate things. Make it simple. Yes, there can be some complicating parts uh, to faith. I'm not saying everything is simple, but uh, we can't, overcomplicate it and make it to where it's this impossible task to overcome. Uh, make it personal and make it simple uh, and then make it your own. I agree. Thank you so much, Bob, for sitting down with us. And You're welcome. Being patient with the equipment breaking last time and us, <laughs> you know, getting another meal out of you. <laughs> it was just the food, you know, that's the only reason. <laughs> well, I suspected that all along. <laughs> No, we really appreciate your time and your advice and sharing your stories with us. It's been very encouraging to, to hear oh, these my things. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Thank Bob. You. Thank you.